0: Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle.
1: My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me.
0: But I remember feeling kind of
1: relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worse? I like to say it this way. Great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I recently had a parent contact me uh, about concerns that their child was using heroin and uh, and in what little i know about heroin use um, from my position uh, as a as a treatment care provider um, what they were telling me about what they found and why they suspect and everything uh, brought me to some questions uh, uh, that i had about it Um, and so i reached out for support i reached out for some help and in getting help i met i met someone that i really wanted parents to hear from now let me go back to the story for a second because the, one of the reasons why the parent contacted me is that they said we found needles in our kid's car and when i said all right how many they said about a hundred and i was i was blown away by that i was like you know who needs that do di- do diabetics need that Um, and, and that was, that was the key to me getting support is to understand, um, what type of gear is, is needed. And that led to a conversation about people who provide, um, materials to addicts so that they can, um, use their drugs, but not transmit diseases. And that's a pretty controversial topic. and, and now, honestly, heroin is, is a thing that I've not been around a lot. Uh, it's, it's a thing I've worked with kids on, and the very first intervention I ever did was a heroin intervention. Um, and, and I think I have a good idea of what an addict of heroin uh, is going through while they're in recovery. But finding out that they need to uh, get their supplies and keep their supplies healthy and clean, uh, so that they can at least maintain a level of health that doesn't endanger their community um, is very intriguing to me. And so that's why I reached out to Patty Brazovar, And Patty is a HIV Program Prevention Specialist at the Boulder County Public Health in Boulder, Colorado. And beyond ask, answering my questions about um, whether or not Um, this situation was accurate, and what I could take back to the parents, I became more and more intrigued with Patty's experience uh, with heroin addicts and HIV and our community. Today's show is titled The Eye of the Needle, and my guest is Patty Breslaug. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Patty, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your time. And you've been doing what you've been doing, which is for a while. And so uh, thank you very much for bringing your expertise, Patty. I, this is great. And I think parents are gonna get a lot out of this.
0: Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it. So
1: how long have you been working with um, the Boulder County Public Health?
0: I've been at Boulder County Public Health for the last 18 years and I have been in the HIV and hepatitis C prevention program that entire time, Um, and then interfacing with our syringe access program, which is called the Works program, pretty much that whole time, but really in the past 10 to 15 years, um, focusing on the syringe access program, sometimes called the needle exchange program. The needle
1: exchange. Okay, so that's that's what we're gonna be talking a little bit about, but I, I wanna go back. How did you get into this work? How did you end up um, um, working with addicts and needle exchange and the works and, and clean syringe um, distribution?
0: Yes, well, um, my background is mostly in sexual health. And so when I started here, my focus and my job was HIV and hepatitis prevention but we have had the syringe access program in place at Boulder County Public Health since 1989 actually it was the one of the um, first syringe access programs in the country and so it was part of the program I started working in um, and although my background wasn't in addiction counseling, and I, I don't at all profess to be an expert, I'm not an addiction counselor, but I certainly have had my own personal experiences in my family with friends um, with drug use and addiction. And so it, it was always an interest to me, and I learned as I was working in this program um, to interface with our participants and our clients, and I just became more and more interested, and. Um, was fortunate enough to be able to uh, kind of slide into that role also
1: and so no one in your family you haven't had a a direct experience with heroin use addiction the loss of of someone who who was a user
0: oh I I have yes I have had personal experiences in my family my family members both with um, Opiate use and other drug use, and I have had some deaths in my family due to um, drug use. What about HIV
1: and hepatitis? Have you, have, uh, it, what as you as you came to this with with sexual health in mind, and you end up focusing on HIV and hepatitis? And you're talking about '89, so we were still in in a pretty big, serious worry and wonderment and fear about HIV. Um, is that something that you would have personal experience with in your life
0: um i i do yes um i have a a close brother who um is gay and was a model in new york city in the 80s and so was very impacted by the early hiv epidemic in terms of losing friends and um his many of his friends were my friends and so i was impacted that way and just the impact that it had on his life was, um, was really impactful for me too. So um, that was a personal interest in learning more about HIV prevention and what I could do with it. And my background and my interest was always health and sexual health just was sort of right up my alley. So I became just slowly focusing a little bit more on HIV. Um, and then when I came to Boulder County Public Health, the HIV and hepatitis program were linked. So I learned more and more about hepatitis, specifically hepatitis C, which is very linked to injection drug use, um, as we know, and so they, they kind of all connected.
1: Now, I was living in California and in the acting industry um, in the early 90s, you know, graduated from high school and, uh, and the near the end of the 80s and so i became very exposed coming from a small town in colorado going out to california and in hollywood uh became very exposed to how rampant uh, aids hiv uh, was out there and and certainly at that time this was before people knew uh the the the, kind of the masses knew about freddie mercury but in in hollywood people already knew that he was dying from hiv aids and um we don't talk about it much anymore. Is it, is it better? Is it worse? Has, how are the numbers with, with AIDS and HIV first? And then I want to talk about Hep C.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, it, it definitely is not going away. So HIV is out there. Um, the numbers in the United States have been pretty stable for the last 10 to 15 years in terms of new transmissions. Um, and you, I agree with you. We do not talk about it as much as we used to, and it's unfortunate because we still need to teach people how to be safe and how to prevent HIV transmission. And we have new tools now that are very effective in preventing HIV transmissions. And treatment itself is a is a way of prevention of HIV. Um, but it's not as much in the forefront, and so it people don't think about it as much as they used to and there's been a pretty big push for HIV testing to sort of go into the private sector where people's private physicians offer them HIV testing it's not as much of a a public health program um, because we've kind of moved it into that that private sector and so But that means we're gonna lose
1: public funding and people who don't have health insurance, people who don't have private doctors won't have access to the testing.
0: Well, fortunately in Boulder County, we still do offer HIV testing in the public health sector and it is uh, whatever people can afford to pay. So it is completely accessible for the public in Boulder County. But yes, you're right, there has been some loss of funding in the public health sector because of that push toward private care
1: this thing this disease this this terror was at the forefront of the news and i'm i'm listening to you talk and i'm trying to think about other than my conversation with you a couple weeks ago and this show i'm trying to think about the last time i heard about this and i can't I can't remember it's been years since we've talked about this it's been years that some star has come forward or some some athlete or some some politician has stepped into the to the spot to say this is still happening this is still going on what are we gonna do about it
0: yeah you're right and it does sometimes take those really visible media things happening to get us to think and talk about it again um, you know, whether it's a TV show even or a movie that comes out that gets people thinking about it, I see those little blips when, when that happens. I get more people calling and asking questions and making appointments for HIV testing and I kind of wait for those things to happen. There's not as much funding anymore to do those um, public health media type campaigns to have this in the forefront because it is a disease that has stabilized somewhat. Um, but my personal opinion is we do still need to talk about it and I love educating people about it and helping them come up with strategies to stay safe because this is HIV is a preventable disease and people just know need to know how to prevent it and to know their own HIV status um, to be able to keep themselves and other people safe.
1: Now, part of, the, part of the stigma that used to come up, and I know this is also what we're dealing with with hep C, is that it belongs to a, a narrow market, right? That, that HIV and hep C is a niche market, one of those markets being um, intravenous drug users. What percentage of, um, of HIV or hepatitis and, and the spreading of it comes from uh, needle sharing?
0: Um, for HIV, it's quite low. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers at my fingertip, but I remember seeing in the Denver metro area. I think it was about three um, percent of injection drug use of injection drug users were HIV positive. Um, so it's, it's quite low. HIV transmission is not effectively transmitted through needle use as much as it is through sexual contact. Hepatitis C, on the other hand, is very easily transmitted to injection drug use and sharing of needles. And um, I think those same statistics in the Denver metro area showed upwards of about 60% of injection drug users were um, hepatitis C positive.
1: And is that because we don't know enough about it? Is that because the education for for users and sufferers isn't out there? and, w- and what, is, what is the education? What is it about hepatitis C that we need people to know?
0: Um, well, it's, it's both. It's education, um, and I think up until just a couple of years ago, it was lack of good treatment for hepatitis C. So hepatitis C is a blood-borne virus. It is transmitted from blood to blood contact. So sharing of a needle, or any injection equipment for that matter, is a pretty efficient way of transmitting somebody's infected blood into the non-infected person, um, much more so than HIV, partly because hepatitis C is a virus that lives outside of the body for up to weeks. So it can live in dried blood for weeks, meaning that a needle that's been sitting there for a while, um, somebody else could use it, and you know, a week or two later it still is potentially infectious with hepatitis C. Also up until a couple of years ago, we did not have very good treatment for hepatitis C. So many people who were hepatitis C positive either didn't have effective treatment or declined treatment because it was very difficult to comply with. Um, And so there wasn't much people could do. And if they were continuing to engage in unsafe injection practices, it was possible that they were able to transmit this virus to other people. In comparison to how it's transmitted through needles, HIV, which can also be transmitted through blood, is a much more fragile virus, and it dies outside of the body very quickly. Um, And so it does not live on a needle very long at all. So transmission through needle use is not nearly as um, easily transmitted as hepatitis C is.
1: How soon after you contract hepatitis C, do you show symptoms and what are the symptoms?
0: Many people do not have symptoms for many years, 10, 20 years. People can have hepatitis C and not know it. And all this time they could be um,
1: transmitting it without knowledge.
0: That's exactly right, yes. Yep, it can be tested very easily. Both HIV and hepatitis C can be tested with a very simple finger stick test um, that is rapid meaning that the results are present in 20 minutes so people get a result wow. immediately um, and you can test within just a couple of months after exposure and it will be accurate
1: okay well this this bridges I guess for for me for parents that I work with mm-hmm. for counselors who may have very you know um, I guess I'm, I'm gonna say clear a a, a clear-cut value system about how to help an addict um, heal Uh, this is this is where the subject may get a little sensitive for some people Um, and and our facility is built on an abstinence model however we don't just work with kids who are smoking way too much weed or drinking or snorting cocaine or doing X Um, we're also working with kids who are struggling with sex. We're working with kids who are struggling with food. We're working with kids who are struggling with runaway and video games and and social media, internet. Um, And the abstinent model is not a, it's not a blanket that can cover all different types of, of uh, addictions. Mm -hmm. Harm reduction when, when you broach the concept of harm reduction with the kid who cuts, and what we're finding is that cutting and self-harm is extremely addictive. And when you broach the concept with the parents with a, a, with the child themselves about harm reduction, just cut less or cut in places that heal faster, um, right. it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense to those of us who know, myself included that, if I started up drinking again, I'm done for, I'm gone. If I started smoking pot again, I'm done for. I'm, I will be off and running and it will go from a glass of wine one night because I think I can handle it and I'm schnockered for the, for the weekend and I'm out. And so, so explain the theory behind, and I'm leading towards needle sharing, giving addicts needles. So that it's safer for them to use. Explain the philosophy, why that. Where did it come from? How do people how do people get behind this?
0: So, <clears throat> harm reduction, um, in general, is just you know coming up with strategies for people to reduce the negative harm of their actions, whether it's around drug use, or sexual activity, or cutting um and so that is the approach that we're coming from that people who are actively engaging in injecting drugs we want to help them reduce the harm associated with that whether it is uh, spreading hiv and hepatitis c um, soft tissue infection overdose if people are actively using we want to help them stay safe now harm reduction the philosophy behind it, um, you know, I think really started in the 80s in relation to the HIV epidemic and the, the transmission of HIV through injection drug use. Um, and of course, it's just taken off since then, and we um, continue to, to recognize that people who are injecting drugs are in a population that is highly stigmatized and shamed, and when people are stigmatized and feel shame they are gonna hide um, and that's the last thing we want people to do we want them to be able to form relationships with us to be treated with respect with non-judgment um, until or when they feel that for them it's ready for them to make some changes and maybe live a life of recovery but until that point we believe that People deserve to have the tools and the resources that they need to stay safe.
1: So um, my so. my conservative side, my devil's advocate side, and, and please remember, I've been in this industry a long time, so I get it, but I want to be the voice of people who don't, so that the explanation um, is available to us all. The the response that that my my frustrated with this uh, uh with this disease with this self-harming that's going on with that that every addict engages in regardless of what they're engaged in is you just need to stop it's not just killing you it's killing other people and you just need to stop how do you respond to to that argument
0: Well, if that worked, and if shaming and stigmatizing and incarcerating drug users worked, we would be done, and we wouldn't be talking about this, right? But it hasn't worked, and so for those people who that message hasn't worked for, um, we still want to give them the tools in order for them to stay alive and stay out of the hospital and stay out of jail. And that is what we're doing in syringe access programs. And I guess, giving I, guess them
1: the, I, mm-hmm. I love what you said. That's a brilliant answer. And so, so then my, my question is, does, does the harm reduction model work?
0: I believe it works in keeping people um, healthy and safe and um, feel humanized. Um, You know, so many times people are using behind closed doors, are hiding their use because they know that they are so stigmatized and they're used to being treated horribly by many people um, because of what they do or how they look and this is one of the few places where they can come in and not feel judged and, you know, we love our participants and that comes through and they can sit here and they can talk to us about what's going on in their life without judgment um and i think that is one of the most powerful things that we do is treat people with respect and kindness
1: you're 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 so you're so graceful and and with the way you talk about these people who truly are living in hell and and I'm without getting into, you know, this is a disease, this is not a disease. What I do know is that no one, no one starts thinking that this is what they want. No one, no one begins this. I didn't begin my, my drug use thinking that this is, this is how I wanted to end up, that this was going to be the thing that I was shooting for. Um, and And you're so very... I I use the word graceful. You're so warm when you talk about this. You're so at peace and in harmony with the stigma, with the, with the, these are, these are people who are suffering. These are people who are hurting and and for them to be able to come to you and to be given clean, healthy materials to use um, and have a conversation. I, I guess my question is, do you guys, does Boulder County at least, also provide a safe place for them to use so that they can properly dispose of the needles and the cotton and all that type of stuff as well.
0: Um, well, thank you for saying that. And I, I do really feel passionate about this and I, I'm glad that it comes across because I believe everybody deserves to be treated with respect in, in regard regardless of what they're doing and their drug use. Um, and so, to answer your question, Boulder County Public Health believes very strongly in providing that service for individuals and treating them in a non non-jud- judgmental and um, destigmatized way. Um, but no, we do not provide a safe place for people to inject, um, we just provide equipment, safe injection equipment for people. Um, what you're talking about are supervised injection facilities, which yes. are um, they're not um, in the United States yet, although Colorado is working on passing legislation, particularly in Denver, to, to um, have that happen at some point. But that is not what is happening yet. So syringe access programs provide clean injection equipment in terms of sterile syringes. Um, Cookers and cottons and tourniquets and alcohol swabs and sterile waters um, and sharps containers. So um, the ability for people to dispose of their syringes properly, they can bring their used syringes back to us and we dispose of them in a biohazard way. So we help keep used syringes out of the garbage and off of the street um, and so that is definitely a harm reduction practice there, in terms of the community also.
1: In these kits, are is there information for help provided to the addict? You know, um, is there is there a motivational card, uh, an invitation, just a a piece of paper that says, "I love you," you know, that that just that just. It, 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 Maybe nine times out of a ten, it would be used to to roll a joint, but that one time, or or, or nine hundred times out of uh, a nine hundred mm-hmm. and one time, right? Is is it? Are there resources provided inside the kits if they decide that this is their last kit they're going to get?
0: Absolutely. So um, we don't give out a piece of paper that says I love you, but that's a great <laughs> idea. Hopefully it comes across in the way that we treat our participants. But what participants do get, um, every participant gets uh, a card. It's it's an ID card, even though it doesn't have their name on it, because our programs are anonymous. People do not have to give their name um, in order to be a member. Um, but it has a, a unique identification code for them because being a participant of a syringe access program is legal and it actually provides some legal protections for participants. So these cards, um, they do actually talk about respect and um, what, is, what their rights and responsibilities are, basically to be treated with respect and non-judgment and that we ask for the same in return. It also gives them information and resources about um, harm reduction laws that protect them. So um, for instance, a participant of a syringe access program has legal protection um, against paraphernalia charges. So they can legally carry clean and used syringes um, without being charged with paraphernalia. Um, It talks about Good Samaritan law so people who uh, call 911 because they're witnessing and responding to an overdose uh, they are protected against drug charges um, along with the person who's overdosing so our the information does explain all of that all of the harm reduction legislation it also has numbers for treatment resources um, how to get life-saving overdose medication called Narcan, which we provide here, and we do trainings on overdose prevention and Narcan. Um, And then when participants come in, even not a card that says this, we do talk specifically to individuals about safe injection practices, and we have materials that show people how to inject safely and how to prevent soft tissue uh, injuries. how to um, not initiate others into injection use so we do have harm reduction strategies that way to work with people who who maybe their friends are asking them to initiate them into injection use and, and we work with individuals to um, provide tools to not do that so we, they can keep their friends safe. Um, and and really, you know, the overdose prevention piece is huge now because, of course, we have an overdose epidemic in this country. And so, a big part of what we do and what we talk about is uh, saving lives. In, until people are ready um, to uh, reduce their harm through treatment, um, we do not we do not specifically talk about treatment unless people ask or show interest in it because part of our model is meeting a person where they're at. And if they are not ready to hear it, we don't talk about it. But when they do talk about it, we have resources. We work very closely with our community partners and treatment facilities to be able to uh, provide those resources to people. We know that people are on a continuum when they come in here. And even if they come to us and say, I am so done, and this happens a lot, you know, they are so done, they wanna stop we know that we don't have enough resources. We, don't have an, we can't get people into a facility that day. And so we want to keep them safe until they can get the help they need. And that's, another, that's just another um, thing that's provided through syringe access is to keep people safe and alive until they're ready to access the treatment that they need. And that does include medically assisted therapies um, through abstinence. You know, there is, a, there is a room for abstinence in harm reduction. It's definitely part of the piece.
1: Most definitely. Now, I know that there are a lot of police stations that participate in um, a, a safe place concept that if a, if a drug addict walks in, turns in their gear and says, I need help. That rather than pursue criminal or judicial paths, they will s- pursue a path of recovery with this person and provide support and stuff like that. So, yes. Yeah. Aside from an addict saying to you, um, I-, "I need help right now. I don't want to do this today. I came in for a kit, but I actually I want to go. Uh, I, I want to go somewhere." And you and I both know that that there's not always a bed available. And uh. I guess I guess my question is, how do you know aside from them telling uh, you that they're done, and what do you do what What do you do? How do you keep them safe if there's no bed, and where do you find beds?
0: Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, so how do we keep people safe? Well, we keep them safe by providing clean injection equipment if they're going to continue to inject so i'll ask that question you know if people come in and i don't just assume that they're here to get clean injection equipment i will ask them how are they doing today you know where are they at how does how is their use feeling if they say you know somebody may come in and say i haven't used in a year but i'm ready to use then we have you know a whole different conversation about okay so this person is ready to To relapse how do we deal with that Um, so basically what I'm saying is that there's you know we meet an individual where they are at if they're ready to get into treatment I'll ask them you know are you ready to sit with me today and let's make some phone calls Um, and you know usually I'll call mental health partners initially um, and get some resources figure out you know what might work best for this individual um, so we just kind of see what they need at that moment to stay safe. And if they are going to inject when they walk out of that door, then I want to make sure that they have the equip- equipment they need to inject safely. Um, I want to make sure they walk out of the door with Narcan if they're using opiates so that they or somebody can respond if they overdose so that they don't die before they are able to get the treatment that they want and the resources that they need. I'm,
1: I'm- coming across a, 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 an experience in my mind of, of how do you how do you deal with and I'm, you you must deal with this daily almost is this this lesser of two evils and that's that's kind of the harm reduction model because i can imagine myself there sitting behind a desk and a kid walks in still a child and they they certainly have have the mannerisms the the the, the marks on the body the Uh, the the withdrawal symptoms, you know, they're, they're, they're in desperate and it's a child. And here I am being asked to provide them the thing that I know that I know is going to keep them alive today because their withdrawal could kill them, but may kill them tomorrow. And they're a child. And if I turn them away, that's not, that's not going to stop them from getting high today because they they need a kid I'm not giving them the drugs I'm giving them a safe way to use the drugs so that they don't harm others in their community or get harmed by someone who doesn't know that they have hepatitis C does this does this wear on you is this do you still see this as the lesser of two evils or are you are you firm in the fact that this is in this moment the best the best we can give someone in this state
0: I'm very firm in the fact that harm reduction works and saves lives. Absolutely. And if I have, you know, a younger person in, I, I strongly believe that sitting down and talking to that person and showing them I care is going to provide a situation where they can maybe ask me questions that they've never felt comfortable asking anybody else or get, you know, just a smile from me and, and genuine I care about you and I want you to stay alive today. They may not have gotten that from anybody else in their lives. Right. So I, I firmly believe that this works. Man.
1: Do you do you ever get the feeling that that this this desire to help is being purposefully abused by someone and 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 I, I want to go back to the example where where you and I met and, I, and I, you really cleared me up but I want to pose it because if I had one parent ask me the question I know there's ten more with the same question I called you because this kid had about a hundred needles in the car and I had no idea how many needles comes in a kit my my brain said well you get a needle you get a cotton ball a spoon and you know but I don't know what I'm talking about and this kid had a hundred needles and the parents were horrified and, and the kid was telling them um, that he was selling them do you ever have to confront the situation where you're saying you're we really are trying to help and you're using us you're abusing us you have this id card so that you can get out of trouble when really you know you're not do you know what i'm getting at is there have you ever had to call out I a situation and say no 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 no
0: Um, I do get what you're getting at and I guess my feeling is if there are some people who are using our services to benefit um, I think they're few and far between and uh, really that's okay with me because I think the majority of people are getting the help they need the more because syringe access in this state is legal and there are many different syringe access programs in the state um, needles are very accessible so you know the fact people don't have to buy them basically is what I'm saying so it's pretty unlikely that somebody's gonna get a bunch of syringes here and be able to sell them because anybody can walk through our doors and get them for free so that doesn't usually work but what we do see is we see a lot of individuals who come in and you know many people use drugs together they may be in a household where multiple people are using and so they may get equipment for their friends or they may get equipment for people who for one reason or another are not comfortable coming to us and that's okay we understand that we want to be as as low threshold as possible for for people to get safe equipment and education Um, you know our website has information on it on how to inject safely how to get these resources who they're available to and so it's not like this is not a secret society people can get this information (laughs) Um, i don't think people are really taking advantage of us i just don't think it's happening
1: yeah i agree with you patty and i and i want to say that i'm i'm trying to ask the questions that i think a parent would be asking me You know, because we're dealing with, and I imagine you guys have gotten phone calls at some point where someone says, stop helping them. And and what I recognize in talking to you, and the reason why my first conversation in talking to you is that, A, I can feel your compassion, and B, I know you guys aren't just, you know, here's some needles, happy shooting. Like, it's not, that's not what this is you guys are an education program you guys are a public health program you're a public safety program you are you <laughs> you guys are amazing and you the anybody the idea that any of these people who've been shunned turned away from their families running from the law all this still have a safe place to go where someone's going to Treat them like a human being who's struggling, suffering, and just, like you said, needs a smile or a note that says, I love you, or knows that if they came to you and says, I can't do this anymore, that you're going to drop whatever you're doing and try to help. And that's really what's happening, is that you guys are an access point to a place that is a taboo secret, and it's, mm-hmm. it's riddled with disease and death. And it's, it is a nightmare life. Nobody wants this life. And I have to imagine that there's also parents who would call and say, what are you doing? How could you possibly give my 25-year-old the means yeah. with which to do this?
0: Right. I understand. I, I am a parent, and I understand. It's a, it's a really scary thing to think about your children using drugs and the harms that can come from it. So I understand that perspective, Um, and yet, like you said, this is, you know, this is an evidence-based, successful public health program, and we work closely with law enforcement and other community partners because it works and because we've seen the successes. And from a parent's perspective, I understand that sometimes we are not the most effective help for our children. We're too emotionally involved, and... And I want to be a resource for parents, too. I definitely understand that sometimes, it, it you know, they need outside help, and we can be that. Um, it, this is not enabling. It is, it is keeping your children safe and alive until they can get the help they need. Um, and I can't say that more strongly. We treat your children as human beings, we care about them. We want them to be successful and to, and to hopefully discover a path of recovery. And we firmly believe that we are able to help move people in that direction when they're ready and to give them the information they need when they're ready for that. And as a
1: parent, you know, as well as I do, I have a 22 and a 23 year old. It's hard to know that other people are out there that you can trust really have your child's best intentions you know and again whether your child is 15 or whether your child is you know 28 and still struggling that, that there are people that work for the county that work for a private business that they started that really do still have your child's best interests in mind and that what they are trying to do is not something they've made up it's something that's showing evidence and I like what you say. It's like this is this is the best way at this moment, at this time, when your child is going to do this, when you're when you're, when this person is going to do this, this is the best way we know to maintain access to them so that when they're ready, they're still alive. That when they want to quit, they still can. They're not, they don't have hep C. They don't have HIV. They, they, that that hasn't. That's been right and they still have someone they can talk to and like me i can imagine there's also those people who come through the door seven years later and go thanks i'm alive and you're like holy moly there you are look at you
0: exactly you know and i have to say that of our participants it's it's a very it's less than one percent of our participants that are under 18. we 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 don't you work with youth a whole lot um But one thing I have to say about that is when people do come in and they're younger and haven't been using uh, drugs and particularly haven't been injecting drugs or substances for very long, I'm I'm happy to be able to reach those individuals because the less number of years they have of use, the more likely they're able to become be successful in recovery and those are messages we can give you know before somebody is in a a long multi-year pattern of drug use um, we're able to give those prevention messages and it's much more successful when people are younger and have you know less number of years of use. so even though our num- the percentage of participants we see that are young are few and far between, I think we're most impactful in in that age group.
1: Let's let's talk about Narcan for a second, because at, way back yeah. in the day when I when I was an EMT, um, Narcan was still some some magic bullet that the paramedics were allowed to use in case we rolled right. up on, on an overdose, and it it has become readily available like like you know people who who, someone's got some and that's that's i guess the best way to say it and i've i work with kids who know all about it when did this change when when was there legislation that said we can give this out to people
0: um legislation for narcan i believe passed in 2013 um I don't have a date with me right here, but yes, just within the last couple of years, we have had uh, legislation that allows naloxone or narcan to be distributed through standing orders, meaning that people any pharmacy can supply narcan to somebody without a prescription. Um, there's an overarching standing order from our state medical director in Colorado, so any layperson can walk into King Super's, Target, Walgreens, Rite Aid, and ask for Narcan. And um, Narcan is an opiate antagonist drug, so it it works to reverse an opiate uh, overdose, and it's extremely effective. Um, the The dosage that's given to the layperson from a pharmacy is is not what you remember from paramedics giving. Oh, we you used to have it.
1: to strap someone to the bed before the paramedic. Hit them with the Narcan because they would come out. Swinging. Exactly.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. So we don't give the dose of Narcan that sends somebody immediately into precipitated withdrawal. Right. So we don't want people to have to deal with somebody who's super combative and sick and not feeling great at all, but enough to get them to start breathing again, because that's what happens when somebody overdoses from an opiate: is that their respiration stops, and this medication takes the opiate off of those brain receptors that uh, get us to not be breathing when there's too much opiate in the body and they basically get people to start breathing again in two to three minutes Um, and we want people
1: was this a colorado change pardon me was this did, did this legislation was this a national legislative movement or was this just colorado
0: no it's colorado it's state by state there are other gotcha. states that have legal standing orders for narcan but it's state by state yeah. Gotcha. 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 and the idea is really to get narcan in the hands of people who can respond as soon as possible and that's often the people who are using drugs with their peers um you know paramedics have it law enforcement has it you know pretty much everybody has it who's going to respond, but we want people to respond within a few minutes before brain damage happens. And that's often the person who is using drugs with their friends.
1: And is it in the form like an EpiPen where it's like a single dose injection?
0: The most common form is a nasal spray. Um, So it's super simple, like a little teeny Afrin bottle type thing that you just squirt it up somebody's nose. Um, It is It is about $70 out of pocket, but most insurance companies cover it. Medicaid covers it, so it's easily accessible. We provide it to our um, syringe access participants here and train them how to use it, but it's not rocket science. It's very, very easy to use. It's not harmful, so if somebody is not overdosing from an opiate and you're uncertain, you can give it safely, and it won't do anything if there's no opiate in the system. Um, so it is, it's kind of a no-brainer, and it's definitely a lifesaver. We hear every single day about somebody who's used Narcan and has saved a life.
1: We're, we're also hearing every single day how bad this opiate crisis is, that now we're in an opioid crisis and the opioid crisis and I know because so much of this begins with wh- either what we get at the doctor or what we get, and, and I'm talking about kids again because that's my primary experience, what kids are getting from their doctor or what kids are getting out of their parents' medicine cabinet. Has this opioid crisis led to a larger uh, injection and needle use crisis? Do, do we have more intravenous users now because we had more uh, uh people taking the pills?
0: Um, I believe yes. It definitely plays out in just the numbers of our participants in our Syringe Access Program. We, um, this year we're on par to see about 2,000 participants. Um, and 2,000? 2,000 2, individual participants in our program, which has, which has, grown exponentially just eight years ago in 2010 we had a hundred oh and fifty participants and now we have two thousand But go- I, I do have to say that the the opiate epidemic certainly is feeding into this but I just want to be really clear that we work with people who are injecting multiple substances different Those. substances we have just as many people injecting methamphetamines as heroin. So it is, you know, it's across the board. It's, and I, I do think we do a little bit of a disservice by focusing so much on opiates, although that, that's what's killing a lot of people. But methamphetamine use is very, is very common and um, it, we too need to focus on that.
1: Without a doubt. So we, we've seen a rise from 150 people using your services in 2010, you said?
0: Exactly right.
1: To 2018, where we have 2,000 people. You guys are planning on seeing this year. How big is Boulder? We've
0: seen about a thousand people so far from gotcha. from January to June. Mm-hmm.
1: So how big is Boulder County, just for people's reference? You know, because I know I I started my home and but I I, I the 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 Fire Mountain started in Boulder County. But what's the population of Boulder County, so that people get an idea of of what we're talking about when we talk about 2,000 people are using a needle exchange program. 300,000, estimated at 300,000. The estimated population of Boulder is 104. And the population of Boulder metropolitan statistical area is much larger, estimated at 300,000.
0: I, I guarantee you, we're not reaching everybody who's injecting of substances. Course. You know, that's just 2,000 people who are comfortable enough or have the accessibility to get to a program like ours. So, we really believe that our participants are reaching a much larger population. They're sharing equipment and information with their friends who, who won't come into our programs. Um, and we do have, we have four programs four locations in Boulder County that provide syringe access. We're very lucky, we have great accessibility. Uh, one of our locations is uh, located at Mental Health Partners Detox Facility, yeah. and so they're they're available to provide after hours, 24 hour service.
1: How do you encourage people to bring their friends in? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's the strangest refer a friend program ever but i can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine well, people who've had that loving compassionate experience with you not turn around and say dude you got to come meet these people
0: i hope they do say that and i do know that there are people who are afraid to come in for various reasons mainly because they've been stigmatized in so many other ways and locations and so yes i do encourage people to say you know, we, we are here to help people. We are, you know, sometimes they're afraid that there's law enforcement on scene and, you know, we ensure people that we are on their side to help them stay safe. Um, and we're so fortunate to live and work in a community that has other community partners that are supportive of our program. Like I said, we work very closely with law enforcement. You know, even before syringe access was legal in the state of Colorado, we were able to work with law enforcement to make sure that we had this program up and running because they viewed it as safety measure for themselves too. Um, They knew that if people had the accessibility to get clean needles and to dispose of used syringes, it's gonna be safer for the community at large. So we've been able to have great support with all of our community partners. Um, That has been really helpful. And it's allowed us to be able to provide that really welcoming experience for people because they may see us as a public health governmental agency and be alarmed the first time they come in, but they quickly understand that everybody they approach, from the front desk staff to the security officers, they are accepting of our program and welcoming of the people who come in.
1: With all the years you've, you've been doing this, and as this has grown and changed, uh, I'm curious to what you would do differently if, if you were, if you were boss goddess and you were large and in charge of this this whole project, um, and we don't do it maybe because of red tape or maybe it's a little too um, edgy, maybe it's something that you know we know works with addicts, but but the masses just aren't ready to accept yet. What would you do differently?
0: Um, I think I would really. Educate more and focus more, kind of, on these uh, upstream issues of why people are using in the first place. You know, open up those doors of communication with uh, family members and uh, other community partners and the population at large. Of this is such a multi-addiction; is such a multi-faceted condition, and uh, you know, people use for 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 what for many reasons, and many of them are related to what we call these adverse childhood events or ACEs that we're just learning more and more about, people who've experienced neglect and abuse. And, and I'm not saying all people who use drugs use because of that, but those are things I think that we have to start paying closer attention to um, and sort of deal with this issue much earlier than when it gets to when people are walking through my doors being having these open conversations about why are people using what what are they trying to escape or trying to feel and i know you you deal with this probably all the time in your work
1: well the the ace assessment is is certainly one that we do right it it, as a kid walks through the door Uh, i Mm -hmm. i can Confidently say, um, of all the kids in my facility, um, all of them are there for trauma, and 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 that that for a parent to understand that we have to help them understand how trauma works what trauma actually is we think these massive horrendous events that have only happened to the people we've heard about and that's while that's extremely traumatic and that is trauma that's not all it is and it's that's a tough one because it goes back to the well you know moms to blame you know you sit on the couch and the therapist blames your mom and the old freudian uh, 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 concept of psychology and that's not what it is nowadays but the the stigma mm-hmm. that you guys stand up to the the compassion that you guys bring patty how long how long can you do this for how long can you keep this work going in in your own your own heart your own how much more stamina you got you you you've had, you, you've, you've had kids you've been doing this for 18 years how much more how, how many more years
0: oh <laughs> well that's a tricky question i (laughs) mean there's you know definitely (laughs) retirement on the on on the fourth (laughs) (laughs) well no my boss totally knows what's going on with me but it's i love what i do and i i don't feel like i'm burned out at all i feel like i get so much energy from the participants that i meet with on a daily basis it's just they're wonderful interactions i love talking to the people that come through our doors and it's it's life-affirming without a doubt it gives me so much energy so yeah i can foresee doing this for a very long time um it's tricky just because i'm getting to that age where (laughs) i would like to be retired and not come to work every day and you know so i don't know i don't know the answer to that but i'm definitely i feel like this gives me energy and it's it's a lovely job I love coming to my work every day
1: it really shows and I I, you're our first conversation—how open and honest and forthright you were with me, uh, when I came with some questions that the parents had and they didn't know who to call, and I didn't have the information they need—you just—you just jumped into this space of I got—I have your information, I have what you need, and I have your support, and you're—you're you're, you're very easy to talk to and and very easy to learn from. So, I want to make sure that as many parents, teachers, and clinicians have access to you and the people like you who are doing this work, how does someone find you?
0: Thank you for saying that. And, and I work with so many great people and great partners, and there are other great syringe access programs and harm reduction um, agencies in this state um, that people can access. But in Boulder County, they can reach the works program here at Boulder County Public Health. On our website, um, which is all org. and um, they can reach me directly at Boulder County Public Health too uh, through email. And um, I can I can tell people that, or you can. Do you want me to tell people that? Yes,
1: please give them give them all your contact information.
0: Okay. So you, people can reach me directly through my email, which is uh, P as in Patty and Brezovar, my last name. So it's P B R E Z O V A R at BoulderCounty.org.
1: Patty, thank you so much for your time. This uh, this has been this has been such a good talk, and I, and, I, and coming into something that is so. Uh, like I said, this is this is a tricky one because because people people don't know this one and and addiction. This is one of the great arguments in recovery, is is abstinence versus harm reduction. And every kid right. that I've ever worked with wants to come in and and try the harm reduction model. I only do it every now and then. And being someone who knows the 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 uh, personally knows the mind and the heart of of, of the addict, I certainly have my how I need to deal with things. Uh, uh, Very clear for myself, but I'm not every person. I'm not every addict, and I'm certainly not every parent, nor every So I really think you've brought in a a view of recovery that needs to be talked about more, needs to be discovered. So thank you for your time. Thank you for this information. And please tell everybody there who signed off when you and I speaking, thank you for me. And give everybody out there on the front lines a big hug.
0: I will for sure. Thank you, Aaron. It's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate your time.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure. Folks, as always, you take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationships second you take care of your children third because in this way we do our best work with our children i want to thank my boss goddess Kristen walker the the uh uh, the ma'am in charge over there at mental health news radio i want to thank my editor dan and everybody else at mental health news radio and all their amazing shows and their inspiration i want to thank all the people in the field all the experts out there and i want to thank the parents who take their time to uh, to listen and, uh, and get support. You are not alone. People get it. Find them. All right, folks, we will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com. Join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.